What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are going to talk to one of the legends in rock music, Velvet Underground founder John Cale. Plus, we'll review the new album from Annie Lennox. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. Don't Stop Believin', How, who can forget that song from Journey? It is one of 24 songs for which Jamie Thomas, a 30-year-old single mother from Brainerd, Minnesota, paid dearly last week in a federal trial. She was found liable for willful copyright infringement to the tune of 24 songs at $9,250 each, including that one from Journey, a total of $222,000 in copyright infringement fines, a potentially precedent-setting decision well, this is the in first Minnesota. Of Jim. those many prosecutions, uh, the RIAA, the Recording Industry Association of America, and the lobbying group for the major label industry, they've, they've been going after people across the country for four years mm-hmm. for downloading songs. This is the first of any of those prosecutions to go to trial. They've been mainly accepting settlements. We tried to reach out to the Recording Industry Association of America, get them represented on this story. They didn't even take our phone calls. Yes, indeed, Jim. And uh, we wanted to go straight to the source in terms of figuring out what happened at this trial and then talk about what the future might hold. Our first guest is going to be Eric Bangman, a managing editor for the ArsTechnica.com website. He was at the trial in Duluth uh, a couple of weeks ago, covered every piece of testimony. Uh, Let's go to Eric for a perspective on that case. Eric, you've been covering this trial from the get-go and you were there for all of the testimony. First of all, did the ruling surprise you? In this particular case, no, it, it doesn't surprise me, given the amount of evidence that the record labels had and the way that they presented it. So, in other words, she didn't have much of a case, is what you're saying? No, it doesn't look like it. Her her main defense was, it wasn't me, and uh, we don't know who it might have been. The evidence, especially the, the use of her username, the screen name on Kazaa, with being the same one that she's used on other sites throughout the years, that was definitely um, a, a large part of the success of the RAA's case. So the prosecution didn't have to prove that anyone downloaded those files. It was simply a case of she just had to make them available for downloading. Whether somebody downloaded them or not was irrelevant. That seemed to be like a key point in the trial. Exactly, yeah. The jury instruction is actually jury instruction number 15, and it specifically said that the uh, the plaintiffs did not have to show that distribution, actual distribution took place, but that making a file available on Kazaa constituted distribution, regardless of, again, whether 
actual distribution took place. This is unbelievable to me. This basically smacks of, okay, I have a party, and I put a bunch of CDs out on my coffee table. So technically, from reading this ruling, I would be guilty of infringement because anybody could come by, pick up that CD off the coffee table, go home and make a copy of it, and therefore I would be guilty of infringement because I made that music available. Yeah, it's an interesting parallel, and in some ways you'd be even more guilty because uh, a curious relic of the the Copyright Act, and in, in that it was written and, and amended before the Internet existed, is that in order for distribution to take place, an actual physical copy has to change hands. So there's a sense in which the the Copyright Act and, and, and talking about distribution doesn't even really apply to the reality of what goes on on peer-to-peer networks. What about the size of the ruling? I, I, I think a lot of people were taken aback that 24 songs uh, infringements was worth $220,000. How did that amount get determined? I think it was just a, man, a matter of the jury wanting to send a message. The, the jurors have been really reluctant to, to talk about it, but the, the one comment that, that I've seen is that you know they, they didn't believe her, and they wanted to send a message that sharing music over a file-sharing network is wrong and needs to be, the people that do that need to be punished. You know, I think that what it, what it comes down to in this particular case is that the RIA really did a, an excellent job shepherding its its evidence and, and talking about the harm that that it believes is caused by file-sharing and breaking the kind of technical minutiae of this case down into kind of easily understandable terms and easily understandable concepts. And I think they were, you know, they were so successful at it that they were able to get this uh, six-figure award out of the jury. We're, we're, we feel bad for Jamie Thomas, but, but you've been covering this issue and, and in all of its uh, incarnations. Are we going to see a Supreme Court argument at some point, you know, pitting on one side the recording industry, pitting on the other side the, 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 the people who download music? That's a good question. Um, I think two things need to happen, and whether they'll happen is anyone's guess. One, the law needs to be rewritten. The law needs to reflect the reality of the Internet and digital distribution. Number two is, is there needs to be some sort of definitive rulings on the issue of whether, and then this you know, sort of technical issue of whether making a file available for distribution on a network is the exact same thing as distribution. And there's been rulings on both sides of the issues, and um, none of those have actually made the, the, the appeals court stage. So it's possible, it's very likely that this could end up in the, as high up as the Supreme Court, but we're probably a few years away from that happening. We want to thank Eric Bangman, the uh, managing editor of the ArsTechnica.com website that has been covering this trial. Thank you for being our guest, Eric. My pleasure. Hello, I'm Jamie Thomas, otherwise now known as Terea Starr. I am still here. I will be a thorn in their sides for the rest of my life because of what they did to me and what they're trying to do to thousands of others. Thank you for listening. That's from a YouTube video put out by Jamie Thomas uh, soliciting money from people for her defense. Uh, She's out $220,000 to the recording industry right now. She's not about to give up the fight. Let's go to our attorney now, Brian Toder from Minneapolis, to get his point of view on this case and where it's going next. 
Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. In the days since this incredible verdict against uh, Ms. Thomas, we've we've heard that uh, she and you, I suppose, are viewing this as only the first step in a fight. You guys are going to continue. Indeed we are. Tell us what happens next in court with Ms. Thomas's case. Well, we have 10 days to file any post-trial motions, and we intend to do that. We intend to challenge the amount of the award. Uh, we believe that it's $9,250 per song, a total of 24 songs. That violates the due process clause of the Constitution, and there's some good case law on our side just regarding the amount. And I think this judge may be inclined to agree. Uh, you know, we'll find out one way or the other. But the singular issue that we will t- be taking to the Court of Appeals is the issue of just exactly what constitutes an infringement. When the judge was dealing with the instructions, he had, in one hand, he had an instruction that said, uh, making available, uh, that, that in and of itself is enough. On the other hand, he had a, an instruction that said, there must be something more than just making uh, recordings available. There has to be some accompanying sharing or distribution mm-hmm. or copying. And no court of appeals case has ever taken that issue headlong. There's cases, there's cases that talk about that and what the courts would do, but there, those cases were before those courts on some other issue. This will actually be something that will result in a holding, so we're taking that on right away. Now, it sounds, Brian, as if these are, are still very particular, specific issues in the case that the RAA brought against Jamie Thomas. You know, one question Greg and I have had as, as newspaper reporters and as music critics covering this issue since its, its origins is when are we going to get the giant national debate, which I suppose would be the forum, would be the Supreme Court, about whether this is valid. We've had Professor Lawrence Lessig as a guest on Sound Opinions, you know, and he makes the point that copyright law in this country, you know, is far out of date, needs to be completely reexamined revamped. Congress needs to to write new law because it, it, you know, it originated a century ago, long before the the internet, long before technology. And and, uh, is that the fight you're going to wind up with here by default eventually? That's precisely the fight that we're in. These, the copyright laws were, came from a day when there was mimeograph machines and uh, vinyl records. And, And now in the electronic age, nobody knows exactly what is an infringement or not. And Truthfully, I believe that this is something the courts can't fix. This is something Congress is going to have to fix. But in the meantime, whether or not simply copying something or simply making something available electronically, that that's a big, huge step. If they find, if the court should find, and this may go to the Supreme Court because there is a division among the circuits on this, if either the Court of Appeals or a Supreme Court decides that simply making available is not enough, there has to be uh, evidence of copying, that will stop the, the labels dead in their tracks with this machine that they have for harvesting all these names. Mm. Because uh, the only downloading that that ever occurred in this case was Media Sentry, the people who worked for plaintiffs, the labels. They're the ones who captured, downloaded these songs off of whoever was using my client's name. Your client, uh, Jamie Thomas, had uh, more than a thousand songs on her hard drive, as I understand, uh, Brian. But the the prosecution focused on 24 songs. What was the reason for that? They, they only picked 24 because 24 songs were downloaded. They, they must somehow think that maybe our issue, you know, this could go our way, and so they, they wanted to show that there was a downloading. So they're stuck with 24 songs. The, really, the issues in this case are 24 songs, not the 1,702 that were in that screenshot. Right, right. Prior to this trial, were there any negotiations going on 
to to settle this case out of court before it got to the stage because it is the first actual trial in this four-year prosecution of uh, its customers by the record industry. Sure, there were settlement talks before we went to the trial. They wanted us to pay them, and we wanted them to pay us. <laughs> you you wanted them to pay you what for legal costs and, yes. and trouble and aggravation? Uh huh. No, we wanted them to you know, and and typically in copyright infringement cases, the prevailing party is entitled to uh, attorney's fees. Right. And uh, we wanted them to pay us. They wanted us to pay them. You can't settle a case when you're stuck like that. Can well, you, we don't want you to betray attorney-client privilege, uh, uh, Brian. But was there a point when Jamie came to you and said, "You know, I understand this issue, and I think the record industry is dead wrong, and I want to fight it"? It wasn't. No, the, we did not have some crusade in mind. We didn't want to, you know, right the wrongs, you know, that are taking place from shore to shore. This was strictly about. She came into my office and said, "I didn't do this, and they're not going to bully me." Well, she's now being painted as a crusader, though, and, and she seems to be embracing the role. She basically said, I'm going to be a thorn in the side of this industry. That's right. That's exactly what she has metamorphosized into. <laughs> They've created a monster. <laughs> They've created their own worst nightmare. <laughs> Brian Toder, thank you so much for being our guest on Sound Opinions. We appreciate your perspective on, on this trial. Thanks for having me. I can't help it. You're perfect for me, I could care less. You're perfect for me, I've been waiting. You're perfect for me right now. In the moment, you're perfect for me, I've been waiting. You're perfect for me, I'm not perfect. But you're perfect for me right now. That is a song called Perfect from an album called Black Acetate by John Cale. We are uh, reviving this interview we did with John when that record came out in 2005 because he is one of the most legendary figures in the history of rock and roll. Not only was he a co-founder with Lou Reed of the Velvet Underground, perhaps the single most influential rock band of all time, he is a producer of no small repute, uh, having helmed the debut albums by Patti Smith, Iggy Pop, Jonathan Richmond, among many, many others. John was touring behind Black Acetate when we caught up with him, and he had a lot of interesting things to say about that album and his career. John, is a new album out, Black Acetate, which is the uh, 503rd album of his career. <laughs> it's a good one, John. Thank you, guys. And, and, and I just read, it seems to be the cliche of reviewers this time through America, uh, you know, John Cale on a late career role after Hobo Sapiens and, uh, and Locusts and... Uh, but, I mean, I, I don't believe there has ever been a bad John Cale album. Well, that's the thing about the, the colors on Black Acetate and also Hobo Sapiens. You were experimenting with some new stuff that I don't think you'd have really kind of touched on in your yeah. career. You've been all yeah. over the place. I mean, started out in the avant-garde and classical scenes, went over into the rock spectrum. You've done just about everything. Now you're experimenting with, in, with loops and samples and electronic elements and those kind of textures. Well, that's that's kind of a safe place to start. But really, it, it, what it got interesting was uh, things like Hush, where you didn't have a bass. You know, we went and played with MPC. It was a tough piece of equipment to deal with. And what what is an MPC, yeah, John? Explain that to our yeah. listeners. <laughs> It's a, it's a rhythm machine, and it has a compression ratio in it that is ferocious. It kind of dictates what you can do. I mean, it, it, if you're going to be a funky, you, you, you can sway from side to side, but you get that MPC, and it really makes your head move backwards and forwards. 
It's when you hear a, a car driving by playing hip hop, and all you hear is a thump. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't allow you to have very many other instruments. You don't need very many other instruments. It, I mean, it's you know, it's it, it's its own thing. It's yeah. great. Pharrell doesn't on drop it like it's hot. There was nothing there very much. Pharrell of the Neptunes, who's uh, kind of been a hero yeah. on this current phase. Of no, that. Well, but now you have been a noise monster your entire career. I mean, what you were doing early on with Lamont Young or the Velvets, where you you were the equivalent of the car blasting people's ear, eardrums of it. And but and at age sixty three, you still love the noise. Yeah, <laughs> but it, I don't know. I mean, where are you going to have your fun? You got to have it somewhere. Yeah. I mean, it's, Let's put a band together and go on the road. And make a lot of noise. Yeah. There's also the erotic element. The erotic element is so important in music. The sensuality that's there in black acetate, that's something that you were going for, I take it. You know, it came out of sitting down and working at the grooves first. I'd write songs in the studio, with the studio, on the studio, not in my room. I don't sit around and, and strum, and here's a guitar. Um, and I was trying really hard to get away from hobo. I really didn't want to have a keyboard-based, anything as sultry and as, as exotic-sounding as that. And um, I wasn't getting away from it. Then Snoop happened and drop it, and it just sort of said, hey, you got to be a little bit more brutal about your thinking about rhythm. How did you come across the Snoop album? I have a friend who works at Universal mm-hmm. who called me up one day and said he just came out of an A&R meeting and everybody's sitting around the table listening to the, the single before drop it, mm-hmm. scratching their heads and saying, is that a spray can? When I heard that, I suddenly perked up my ears because that's not just making a record. That's telling right. you something about the milieu and everything else. Yeah. And it went on in, in Drop It. I don't know whether there were a hundred other tracks that they pulled out of Drop It, but right. the fact that they ended up with what they were, you know, was inspiring. I think I think the production on that music, it's it's avant garde music. I yeah, mean you're going it's exactly. top forty music. There you go. And you know, the lyrics are very blunt maybe, the verses are very blunt and you understand why there's a hook here. But meanwhile the backdrops for these records are astonishing yeah. in the way that they use sound and color textures. See, what I want to hear is John Cale producing Snoop. Ah, now sure. that would be... I, I, want to I ask think it'll you. be the other way around. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We'll be back in a minute with more of our conversation with John Cale. And later in the show, we'll review the newest album from Annie Lennox.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Greg Cott, and my partner is Jim DeRogatis. We're going to continue our conversation with Velvet Underground founder John Cale, which we taped about a year ago in our studio. We asked John about his tumultuous relationship with YouTube producer Brian Eno, his love of hip-hop, and his work with Roxy Music guitarist Phil Manzanera. You famously collaborated with Brian Eno on Wrong Way Up. And then uh, you and Eno had a falling out for a while. <laughs> the cover of the album had daggers on it, cause you, but then uh, are, are now uh, occasionally working together again and friendly. How closely related to that was his oblique strategies and, and the, his theories of the happy accident, just being open to stuff? Uh, I mean, it's all part of it. I mean, yeah. I think we both agreed on the MO. Mm. I mean, uh, that, that mistakes are really important. And, and, mm-hmm. the, the, and I think we both were impatient enough with the studio that the system that we used it, we were still in analog. The value of Logic Pro Tools is that you can change your mind within you know 30 minutes and redirect the whole song. Yeah. That's the value of it. Is like you know I don't like being in the studio. There's sort of closets with no you know no, mm-hmm. I like going out outdoors. So it gives you a sense of goal, you know, yeah. when you have that because if once you get fast at it. And what what I was saying to you about. The Snoop thing, the gap between October and January, we were finished it up. When we got back in January, we were really putting the pressure on it. And your knowledge of, of this uh, an interest in this music leads me to wonder, you as a producer, as a guy who sort of set the template for a whole generation of music by producing the debut albums of the Stooges and Patti Smith and Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers, and now your interest in hip-hop leads me to believe, I mean, do you ever have the notion of going back in the studio and saying, geez, what if we work in some hybrid areas with some of these newer artists that you're admiring, you know, Pharrell Williams and Snoop Dogg, people like that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd love to spend an afternoon with Dre. Yeah, but, it, it, you know, the hybrid is the answer. There's always a new hybrid around the corner. You're able to intellectualize it now, but was that kind of thought in your mind when you were producing those records, which became no, timeless back then? No, that was really about the personalities. I mean, if you, the minute you met Maddie, the minute you met Patty, that was it. You knew that there was, there was really a vision there. And it was just a case of well, how do we get that with out? With Iggy, right? you know, you got five days to finish it, record and mix an album. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Get it on. How would, how would Fear or Guts have sounded? You know, those great records from your, your island years have sounded different if you had Pro Tools at that point. I mean, it seemed to me that you were working fast and dirty and those are, those are raucous rock albums. Yeah, but I had Manzanera and, and, uh, and Dry in the hell. Yeah. I mean, it, it was still a case of uh, these are the changes, but you be, you come up with the guitar part. Mm-hmm. I don't care what key the song is in, this is yeah. the guitar part. <laughs> and I like that. John, you are always going to be followed around with wherever you go, as long as you live, and then when you die, you will still have John Cale, founder of the Velvet Underground. How does that legacy hold up for you? I mean, I know there's been a lot of ups and downs, some acrimony there. 
I was in your apartment in New York when you and Lou were exchanging faxes. <laughs> the famous fax war, yeah. And, uh, and, and, and not liking each other so much. Obviously, it was a nice opportunity to play again with Sterling Morrison before he died. But uh, how do you feel about that legacy being attached to your name? I mean, you can't be anything but proud of it. I mean, I don't think we did anything that was really awful. If we inspired a lot of people, that's, that's all you can hope for, you know. Mm-hmm. But your career has never been about dwelling in the past. Y- no. Your beef with Lou was that you wanted to move forward and write new songs and to, and to improvise and to not be stuck in one place. You could make imitation John Cale music for the rest of your life, and people would pay to come see you. <sighs> yeah, yeah. You could just rewrite Fear. I'd become a really nasty old man if I did <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to, Speaking of nasty, I wanted to ask you, my favorite quote in What's Welsh for Zen, yeah. your uh, autobiography with Victor Bacchus, is uh, and it says, oh, you're in college, still in Wales, prior to coming to America, and uh, you got voted by your peers the most hateful student <laughs> in the school. Oh, you've always been so nice to me. <laughs> I, to Greg, I, I know. Those are the days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we want to know what you did to earn that, John. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I like to know that. <laughs> are you still angry? Yeah. And it, com- it comes out on some tracks on this album. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a good creative. I'm glad I've got a creative outlet for it. I mean, it keeps you from getting on the I wouldn't want to be in politics, rifle. for instance. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think there are great moments of beauty on, on Black Acetate as well, John. You're here in the studio with your band, and I think playing a song like Set Me Free would be a great example of that. Dance 
To the sound of a castanet You're trying hard to forget It sets your teeth on edge When she tries to set you free And you walk in the rain Up to your ankles in water Fixated on a vision Of the hangman's daughter And what she'll mean to She should set you free Free again And again Together again And A song like that is just it's a it seems like there's a there's a an element of beauty it's always been in your work but I've noticed it especially on these last two records amidst all this noise that you're working with and these drones there's this incredible beauty that you're pulling out of it too it's uh, a relief actually to go into into sort of I don't know maybe nostalgia or whatever the the funny thing is that that set me free though it's only about childhood and mm-hmm. get me out of my childhood I don't really want to get out of my chair. I mean, I, that's, <laughs> mm. those are the happy days of my life. And I think your career has sort of been an example of holding on not only to that innocence, but the, the, the sense of freedom, the possibility that you can do anything. And I think uh, it, there's a tendency to think, well, I'm playing by these rules and these are the guidelines. And it seems like every time somebody thinks they've got you figured out, you make an album that completely confounds those expectations. That seems to be what it's all about in a lot of ways. I, I don't think about them per se, What's really important is to do another album that's different from this one. So mm-hmm. the next one, it'll always be like, okay, throw something at me. Let's see where we're going today. And, and if it's if it's scary, then f- you know I'm on the right track. 
Uh, John, if, you, if we had to put you completely on the spot and say, of all of the songs you've written, what, what is there one that you're proudest of? I'm, I'm proud of Gravel Drive. It mm. achieved more than I thought it would. Take me away 
John, why is Gravel Drive dedicated to your daughter, Eden? Oh, it's my way of telling her that when it wasn't explained sufficiently to her when she was small that dad goes away because that's his job. Mm. He goes on tour and he comes back. And then, you know, one day dad didn't come back. So this is my way of saying dad's back. Yeah. You know, he never left. There's a, a, a great picture of her uh, in your book where, where she's playing with the Warhol balloons at the yeah. Pittsburgh Museum. Yeah. I mean, it had, had to be, you know, they're, they're, I'm sure there were downsides, but it also had to be some, some great sides to having dad to have had as many experiences and know as many people as you do. Yeah, she's dealt with it pretty well. Did she give you a response on the song? Did you Have you talked to her about yeah, it? Yeah, we, you know, it's a little few tears, you know. And mm-hmm. stuff. It's interesting that music can be maybe a way of saying some things that uh, you couldn't say yeah. in, a, in a conversation. That's right? very important. Thank you, John. This has really been a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thanks, John. You've got connections, and I've got the art. You like attention, and I like your looks. And I have the style it takes. And you know the people it takes. Up next, a review of the new record by Annie Lennox and a DIJ pick from me. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'll turn the camera on And I won't even be there A portrait that moves You look great, I think I'll put the Empire State Building on your wall For 24 hours glowing on your wall Watch the sun rise above it in your room Wallpaper art, a great view 
I've got a Brillo box that I say it's hot. It's the same one you can buy at any supermarket. Cause I've got the style it takes. And you got the people it takes. This is a rock group called the Velvet Underground. I show movies on them. Do you like the sound? Cause they have a Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Greg, we are listening to a track called Love is Blind by Annie Lennox from her first album in a couple of years since 2003's Bear, Songs of Mass Destruction. <laughs> Cheerful title, that. And, uh, in fact, if we listen to all of that song, we will find a uh, pretty much a suicide note turned inside out <laughs> is, what, is what that song is. Another cheery Annie Lennox song. Annie is not exactly an uplifting artist, but she is truly an extraordinary one. First uh, came to pop culture consciousness as uh, a member of the Eurythmics, of course. She's not exactly been prolific since going solo. Four albums in 15 years, but boy, have they all been worth the wait, at least to her fans. That huge theatrical voice, musings on crushed relationships and the darker side of love. Breakup ballads, if you will. She went through a uh, divorce, uh, the end of her second marriage with Bear in 2003. If anything, she's more sour (laughs) Mm -hmm. and more bitter on this record. But there is also some uplifting or at least inspiring stuff. Now, you and I are always a little bit dubious when people do these big we are the world, let's all gather together and solve the universe problems by by pulling, you know, every artist we can corral together to (laughs) sing on a song But Annie Lennox, I think it's a testament to the strength of her artistic vision and the depth of her commitment to uh, political activism, in particular the fight against AIDS and HIV, that, my God, almost any incredible voice in popular music in the last 20 years, who is anybody, came together to join in this chorus of sisters. Sing out, sisters. Annie is leading them. You've got Beth Gibbons of Portishead, Madonna, Celine Dion, Fergie, my friend Fergie, (laughs) Katie Lang, on and on and on. What an extraordinary thing. And and it really is inspiring to hear all these voices come together behind Annie to, to sing about the incredible troubles in fighting AIDS and HIV in Africa. That's obviously getting a lot of ink, but the whole album is worth us talking about. We're going to play a song called Ghost in My Machine, which is pretty indicative of the entire disc by Annie Lennox.
Annie Lennox, Ghosts in My Machine from the new album Songs of Mass Destruction, only her fourth solo record in a 25-year career. This one, like all her other solo records, features an extraordinary voice at the center of it. Annie Lennox is the link between Dusty Springfield and the current crop of UK soul singers Mm. uh, like Amy Winehouse. Annie Lennox, I think, is at the top of the crop when it comes to this kind of work. The one thing about Lennox that I think is a problem is that she has consistently favored this very slick production, which cuts against the passion that is so obvious in her voice. She's Uh, truly a daughter of the 80s. And the fact that she's hired Glenn Ballard to produce this particular record is really disappointing to me. Glenn Ballard, the very definition of a high-priced studio hack. I mean, this guy works with Toto, Barbara Streisand, Dave Matthews. He's worked with Aerosmith. He's the guy who corrupted Aerosmith and made all those horrible ballads. Yeah, his, his thing is, you know, I write hooks. I create hooks, and I build big, glossy temples to commercial radio around them. He needs to have a business card that says, uh, you know, Glenn Ballard, <laughs> Schlockmeister. <laughs> and Annie Lennox, who usually is a very incisive lyricist, comes up with some real howlers on this record. What won't kill you will make you strong. Everybody is an island of their own. Oh, the grass has grown greener on the other side. It could be stronger lyrically. When she gets it right, she gets it very right, though. That Ghost in My Machine song, I love that gospel-stoked type of thing that she's going on there. She's a real spitfire in uh, Love is Blind, the track we played at the outset. There is a absolutely beautiful, rapturous song in the middle of this record called Lost, where her ballad singing is at the absolute peak of its game. This is the sound of those murderous drums, the marching of footsteps, the twisting of thumbs. I just wish the stuff that was going on around her, especially the production, was a little bit more gritty and grainy in keeping with the quality of that voice. So I'm going to have to give this record a burn it, Jim. It is a dilemma because it is overproduced and it is, uh, you know, kind of glossy and you wish that she would get together with a more gritty kind of indie band. But I have to give it a buy it for two reasons. I, I, I admire Sing. I think it's on the right side of like chest thumping, inspiring as opposed to cheesy. That voice is, is unparalleled. And also my wife, who's a huge fan, would be very upset if I didn't say buy it. But I can listen to this album and not cringe. And I don't think I could say that about anything else Glenn Ballard has ever produced. <laughs> yeah, that's you know, probably so this very is, true. You know, and, and what a voice. I mean, just what she, an extraordinary voice. She is voice. extraordinary. There's and no and I got to get excited about this because I know she's going to be great in concert. She's starting an American tour in a week or two. So I, I'll say buy it. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Yes, that is the introductory fanfare for the Desert Island Jukebox. Whenever possible, Greg or I pick a tune that we cannot live without. This week, it's your turn. Greg, what do you got? Thank you, Jim. I'm inspired, uh, having heard Annie Lennox, uh, thinking back to the soul singers in the UK tradition, very few of which, as I said, really hold up. But uh, one of the ones that does is one of the very first UK singers to be inspired 
by American soul music and sort of bring it back to the English audience and make her own version of it, Dusty Springfield. Ah, yeah. A lot of modern audiences probably know her from the uh, Quentin Tarantino Pulp Fiction soundtrack. They heard Son of a Preacher Man, Mm -hmm. you know, playing in that movie, and they go, oh, yeah, that's a cool song. The only one who could ever reach me was the son of a preacher man. The only boy who could ever teach me and the Pet Shop Boys were, of course, huge fans and had a big hit with her in the 80s. What have I done to deserve this? Amy Winehouse, there would be no Amy Winehouse without Dusty Springfield. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. You know, she's sort of a cliche, you know, the hairspray. Enough Great hairspray hair. to start global warming Great all hair. by itself. Also, don't forget the thick uh, black Mary Quant eyeliner either. Yeah. Well, where would Robert Smith of The Cure be without Dusty Springfield? I mean, he's clearly a fashion inspiration. But it comes down to the music for me. And the, and the song I'm going to play is a song that was actually written by Burt Backrack and Hell David in the 60s was released only as a B-side. wasn't a huge hit, but I think is quintessential Dusty. She's not a belter in the Aretha Franklin vein or the Annie Lennox vein. I think she's best when she's subtle and using that sexy voice. And it's never better than on this song. I think this is a worthy successor to the Flamingos, I Only Have Eyes for You, and Jobim's The Girl from Ipanema. It's in that very sultry tradition. The sax solo in this song even feels like heavy breathing responding Mm. to her. It's the male voice responding to this pillow talk. The song is called The The Look of Love from Dusty Springfield, and Rob, the record store manager in High Fidelity, I think he said it best. (laughs) He said, this is what I thought it was going to be like when I was married. I thought there was going to be the sexy woman with a sexy voice and lots of sexy eye makeup whose devotion to me shone from every pore. And that's what this song's all about, The Look of Love from Dusty Springfield. The Look of Love is in your eyes The look your heart can disguise The look Thank you. 
That was Greg's Desert Island Jukebox pick, The Look of Love by Dusty Springfield. Such an incredible singer, Greg, that I forgive her even covering Bacharach and David, a team <laughs> I uh, generally despise. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, very exciting. The new Radiohead record is out, being digitally downloaded as we speak all around the world. We're going to review the music on that record as well as the new Neil Young record. We've got some thank yous to say. As always, our interview and the performances by John Cale were recorded by Eric Rudd. Sound Opinions is produced by the ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, with help from Dave Mahler, the intern. And as always, our fearless leader is uh, Tori Southside Malatia, a man who knows about Mary Quant makeup and hairspray. <laughs> I love you so. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hi, um, this is Charlie from New York. I just wanted to call and say thanks for your show on The Replacements Let It Be, the classic album dissection. Uh, it was summertime when I was about 15 years old. I went to my local record shop albums and Newport, Massachusetts, and found a beat-up copy of Let It Be on cassette, and uh, and I took it home, and that was it. it it's sort of the album of adolescence. It goes from uh, incisive and articulate to just plain dumb juvenile, juvenile and it, uh, it captures a whole breadth of adolescence right in there, especially my adolescence. So uh, thanks very much. Hello, my name is Ray. I'm from Springfield, Illinois. Fairly new listener of the show. My call is about the Steve Earle review. I didn't know too much about Steve Earle's wife. I didn't know he had a satellite radio show. I didn't know he had seven wives. I didn't know he was on a TV show. I didn't know his songs were used in commercials. I knew about old drug problems, and I knew about his prison time. I knew he was an outspoken political activist, and frankly, I don't go to entertainers for my political information. There were some positive aspects of the Revolution Starts Now CD, but frankly, I saw that as more of a gimmick album. I bought this album, the Washington Street Serenade, after hearing the song Satellite Radio only once. I've never been wowed about a whole album in a long time. Strangely enough, the songs Satellite Radio and Way Down in the Hole are my favorite. No, you can't unlearn things, uh, but maybe you guys shouldn't bring so much of somebody else's baggage with you to the reviews. That's it. Thanks. Hey, Greg and Jim, this is Kevin in Minneapolis. Uh, love the show and love this week's show, but when you were reviewing the new Steve Earle album, Jim made a comment about how he didn't want to hear 
any more Tom Waits songs. I didn't like Tom Waits. There's a, a, an awful cover of Tom Waits. Now, I don't like Tom Waits to begin with. I don't want to hear Steve Earle covering Tom Waits. That kind of threw me for a loop. The guy is one of the foremost singer-songwriters of our time, and it, it's flabbergasting to think that he would not be loved, adored, and respected by you guys. At any rate, my, my faith has been a little bit shaken, and I, I think in penance you ought to do an, an entire hour devoted to the genius of Tom Waits' legacy, and uh, I will keep listening. Thank you. Hi, my name is John Shepard. I'm calling from Cincinnati, Ohio. I wanted to make a comment about the uh, Radiohead story that you covered. I agree that this is kind of a turning point for the industry as to which way things will go. But I'm not quite convinced that it's going to be the the shot across the bow. Uh, People still want to touch the things that they buy and see them on the store shelves and the cool album art and shiny posters. My assessment of the industry is that they give us more product worth buying and promote the bands that are really great rather than canned acts. That's really what we need is good music. Thank you very much. No more messages. To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.